Before we get started on this week's episode, I'd like to correct a slight error. In part one, when I mentioned the COP meeting in Buenos Aires in 2004, I called it COP22, but it was COP10, not 22. Besides, I mentioned COP11 next, so I know that some of you have already figured it out. This week, our first stop is Nairobi, Kenya, in 2006, when COP12 was held. At COP12, the parties discussed ways through which to make the CDM, or Clean Development Mechanism, more accessible, as well as how to maintain momentum in discussions surrounding post-2012 climate policies. But, as we have come to expect, their main discussions centered on possible economic and competitiveness loss. In other words, the delegates at COP12 spent more time talking about the economy than they did talking about the reduction of emissions. COP13 was held in Bali, Indonesia in 2007, with 2012 on the horizon and the Kyoto Protocol being in force for two years. Negotiations on its successor dominated the conference. Because of that, 2007 marked the start of the Bali roadmap towards COP15, when a framework for climate change mitigation post-2012 was expected. The Bali Conference also resulted in the adoption of the Adaptation Fund, which would help developing and other vulnerable countries adapt to the impacts of climate change. Apart from all that, an agreement on a system of payments for developing countries who are conserving tropical forests was established. COP14 was held in Poznan, Poland in 2008. By the way, if that's not the way it's pronounced, I do apologize. COP14 was a direct continuation of COP13. The Bali roadmap continued to dominate the discussions and delegates agreed on principles for the financing of the adaptation fund and approved the incorporation of forest protection within the fund. COP15 was held in Copenhagen in 2009, and it officially marked the end of the Bali Roadmap. After the Bali Roadmap came the Copenhagen Accord. The Accord asserted climate change as one of the greatest challenges of modern times and declared that global warming should be limited to 2 degrees Celsius, or about 35.6 Fahrenheit. As we've seen with earlier accords, and as we shall continue to see with later accords, the Copenhagen Accord wasn't legally binding and did not commit countries to any binding commitments for greenhouse gas emission reductions. More worrying, however, was the fact that it did not call for parties to agree on a legally binding successor to the Kyoto Protocol. Which brings me to the reason why I am making this series of episodes. Double talk. As you can see, COP15 declared climate change as, quote, one of the greatest challenges of modern times, end quote. But then it went on to establish an accord that wasn't even legally binding. How could it, through its words, declare climate change a great challenge, then through its actions, do nothing about it? COP16 was held in Cancun, Mexico in 2010. For COP16, parties and delegates chose to focus on one thing, water in the developing world, particularly its cleanliness, scarcity, and sustainability. Parties also established 
a Green Climate Fund, or GCF, which would distribute $10 billion a year to help poorer countries adapt to the impacts of climate change. However, after all that, there were no talks on how this money would be raised. COP17 was held in Durban, Ireland in 2011. By Ireland, I mean the Republic of, not Northern Ireland. COP17 was just your regular circle jerk until the final day of the negotiations when delegates agreed that by 2015 there would be a legally binding deal involving all countries party to the UNFCCC treaty. The deal, referred to as the Durban Platform for Enhanced Action, was to be the first of its kind. It included developing countries as well as the US who had refused to sign the Kyoto Protocol and would take effect by 2020. Progress was also made on developing a GCF or Green Climate Fund. Unfortunately, despite all the progress made on the final day, it is worth noting that there were no concrete steps taken towards the effort to reduce global warming to a pre-industrial level. COP18 was held in Doha, Qatar in 2012. At COP18, the Doha Climate Gateway was announced. Its aim was to launch a new commitment period for the Kyoto Protocol. This second period was to run from 2012 to 2020, but it didn't receive enough signatures and therefore never entered into force. As for the GCF, nothing was accomplished for the third year running. COP19 was held in Warsaw, Poland in 2013. The craziest thing about this COP was that Poland, at the time, was a climate change denier and had refused to make any commitments regarding fossil fuels, especially coal. So, was anything accomplished? Well, at COP19, the UNFCCC came up with Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, or INDCs, to be submitted before COP21, which would take place in Paris in 2015. COP19 also saw the proposal of the Warsaw Mechanism. The mechanism's purpose was to address developing countries' loss and damages associated with climate change. I should point out, however, that many people did not take COP19 seriously because of Poland's non-committal attitude at the time. COP20 was held in Lima, Peru in 2014. At COP20, it was announced that pledges made by developing and developed countries led to GCF funding, which exceeded the target of $10 billion. The Lima Ministerial Declaration on Education and Awareness was also proposed. Its aim was to ask governments around the world to put climate change into school curricula for the first time. Finally, the most famous COP so far, aside from COP26, COP21 was held in Paris in 2015. And during its duration, the Paris Agreement was announced as the Kyoto Protocol's successor. The Paris Agreement, with 196 signatories, was, fully, was to fully replace the Kyoto Protocol and govern climate change reduction measures through 2020. But does it work? 
let's dive further into the details. Although I should warn you that they can get pretty complicated. So please pay attention to this next part. And if you do need to rewind, feel free to do so. For this next part, we will mostly rely on what the UN and the UNFCCC say. If you want to learn more about the Paris Agreement and all the other COPs, feel free to visit unfccc.int. The Paris Agreement is a legally binding international treaty on climate change. It was adopted by 196 signatories at COP21 in Paris on 12th December 2015 and entered into force on 4th November 2016. The goal of the Paris Climate Agreement is to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius, though it would prefer to limit it further to 1.5 Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. To achieve this long-term temperature goal, countries aim to reach global peaking of greenhouse gas emissions, quote, as soon as possible, to achieve a climate-neutral world by mid-century. The agreement works on a five-year cycle of increasingly ambitious climate action carried out by countries. By 2020, which was supposed to be when COP26 took place, countries were to submit their plans for climate action, known as Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs. You will remember that NDCs were first proposed by the UNFCCC at COP19 and were later integrated into the Paris Agreement. In their NDCs, countries outline actions they will take to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions in order to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. Countries also communicate in their NDCs actions they will take to build resilience to adapt to the impacts of rising temperatures. To put it simply, NDCs are where we begin to see problems with the Paris Agreement, but more on that later. NDCs also feature non-mandatory long-term plans called Long-Term Low Greenhouse Gas Emission Development Strategies, or LT-LEDs. The function of LT-LEDs is to place NDCs into the context of countries' long-term planning and development priorities, providing a vision and direction for future development. Of course, for the Paris Agreement to succeed, if it ever will, countries have to help each other, and there are ways through which this can be achieved, with the first being finance. This part of the Paris Agreement has been adopted directly from the Kyoto Protocol. If you do remember, part of the Kyoto Protocol insisted that developed countries pay for developing countries' attempts at converting to green economies. I covered that in part one. If you haven't listened to it, I strongly suggest that you do. Anyway, the same principle applies to the Paris Agreement. Developed countries should pay for developing countries because developing countries are more vulnerable to climate change. The Paris Agreement also allows countries to make voluntary contributions to other countries, which I think is a good thing. Climate finance is needed for both adaptation and mitigation because both of these systems require large-scale investment into new infrastructure systems. By the way, I saw some people saying that the developing world is asking for more quote-unquote handouts 
by quote unquote inventing climate change. If you do think that, number one, peace off. And number two, developed countries are planning to provide only $100 billion to the developing world's climate change mitigation and adaptation measures, while developing countries are projected to spend at least $500 billion on the same efforts. So there are no quote-unquote handouts. Three, for the fight against climate change to truly succeed, all the countries need to be on a level playing field. Because remember, we all share the same atmosphere and each ton of carbon dioxide released by whatever country is felt around the world by all of us. So again, shame on you. The second way that countries can help each other is through technology. The Paris Agreement aims to realize the vision of technology, development and transfer for both improving resilience to climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It establishes a technology framework to provide overarching guidance to the quote-unquote well-functioning technology mechanism. The technology mechanism is accelerating technology development and transfer through its policy and implementation arms. Finally, the agreement aims to help developing countries develop sufficient methods to deal with many of the challenges brought by climate change. Towards this end, the agreement places great emphasis on climate-related capacity building for developing countries and requests all developed countries to enhance support for capacity building actions in developing countries. With that out of the way, let's address the question that I know you're all asking in your heads. Does the Paris Agreement work? Well, that question has two answers. The short answer is yes. But the long answer is no, not even close. Let's look at the long answer. The first problem with the agreement is time. The Paris Agreement was adopted in 2015, went into force in 2016, but would only begin to be followed in 2020 and will only be able to track any progress made by 2024 through the Enhanced Transparency Framework or ETF. Just like that, that's almost 10 years wasted. 10 years that could have been used to do something significant, especially when you consider the fact that in those 10 years, emissions will have increased rather than decreased. Once you consider that, another problem rears its head. The fact that the agreement was oversold and overhyped. The agreement's main objective is to keep temperatures from rising over 2 degrees Celsius or even keep them below 1.5 degrees. Please note that all the problems we are seeing today all result from a 1.2 degrees Celsius increase above pre-industrial levels. But that's not even the main problem. If every country were to achieve every promise by 2030, we would only manage to cut emissions equivalent to 60 billion tons of carbon dioxide, which sounds like a huge number. But in order to keep global temperatures below the 2 degrees Celsius mark, we would need to cut emissions equivalent to at least 6,000 billion tons of carbon dioxide by the end of the century. That means that by 2030, we would only have achieved 1% 
offset objectives. And please note that at the same time, the population would be increasing and energy demands growing. In fact, it will be easier for us to cut emissions from 1 to 10% than from 90 to 100%. And when you put it like that, you have no choice but to wonder what the hell we are all doing. Let's look at NDCs. The biggest problem with NDCs is that they are nationally determined, meaning each country gets to set its own quotas, which makes it very frustrating. Let's look at Japan as a case study. Japan promised a goal of about an 18% reduction from 1990 levels by 2030, but it, it excluded land use offsets in the base year, while planning to include said offsets in its 2030 results. To make this sound less convoluted, Japan may have promised an 18% reduction, but its actual reduction would be somewhere along the lines of 15%. And all the while, it hasn't made a definite proposal on how to end its reliance on coal energy. When you add all this together, you realize that, while it claims to be close to realizing its climate change goals, all that Japan is doing is trying to hoodwink the world and also dumping radioactive water into the ocean and legalizing whaling. But, like so many other countries, including Saudi Arabia, Japan has realized that being an ally to the West means that you are able to get away with a lot of things that many would consider distasteful. Going back to COP and climate change, if every country were to set goals as modest as Japan's, the Earth would reach between 3 and 4 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the 21st century. In fact, out of all developed countries, only the EU set targets that would be considered effective, and it's the only one that is pursuing an aggressive phase-out of all fossil fuels, including coal. As for two of the largest greenhouse gas emitters on the planet, China is as silent as ever, but we do know that the government is investing in green infrastructure countrywide. The US is complicated. The few emissions reductions that it has achieved so far can be largely attributed to California and the huge steps that the state has taken towards a green economy. The biggest problem with the US and its plans and goals is that in the US, as our American audience can attest, climate change has become a political issue. One side of the political spectrum has consistently denied the existence of climate change, going as far as to reduce it to a conspiracy theory. But that's hardly surprising. To that side of the political spectrum, literally everything is a conspiracy. The only thing that they want is to have as many kids as possible so that a few can remain after some have shot each other. With the guns that they do not want controlled. They call it freedom, but the only freedom I see is the freedom to die. Before you get mad at me, please remember, I have zero stake in American politics. I say what I see as long as it's factual. According to a National Geographic article written in 2019, in the Climate Change Report Card, the US is ranked as, quote, barely trying, while China is ranked as, quote, shows some promise, and the EU is ranked as, quote, top of the class. 
Other than time and NDCs, the next problem we see with the Paris Agreement is the problems that it failed to address. Keep in mind that I'm talking about the Paris Agreement and COP21, not any other COP, though admittedly, not much has changed since COP21, but we shall talk about that later. While writing these, I feel a little conflicted. Should I cover COP26 in this episode, or should I give it its own content and its own episode? And do I have enough information to fill an entire episode? We shall see. After all, what's life without a few ups and downs? First problem, and the biggest elephant in the room, is the fossil fuel industry. At COP26, corporations were allowed to have delegates, and the end result of that decision was the biggest BS greenwashing attempt I have ever seen. But we aren't talking about COP26, at least not yet. One thing that these politicians never seem to understand is that for us to tackle climate change effectively, we have to stop using fossil fuels. By that, I don't mean we should stop using them abruptly. We should stop using them over a specific period of time. And that specific period shouldn't be set by any individual countries. It should be agreed upon. After that, the use of fossil fuels should be declared illegal and fossil fuels declared a a controlled substance. To some, that sounds unreasonable. And that is where the problem lies. By allowing politicians to decide everything for us, we've put our planet on the back burner, so to speak, and allowed politicians to take the front seat, front burner, I don't know. But it is evident that for the politicians at these conferences, politics is the priority. And as long as profits from fossil fuels and fossil fuel companies continue to line the pockets of politicians, then what we are fighting is a losing war. In my opinion, it wasn't an accident that the Paris Agreement did not target specific corporations in the fossil fuel industry. For the fossil fuel industry to be brought under control, corporations should be targeted because it is these corporations that hold sway over politicians and even entire countries. Asking people to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by reducing their reliance on fossil fuels and then not doing anything about the corporations that push fossil fuels is a half measure at best. The next problem is the carbon market scheme. First, let me explain how a carbon market works. If you live in Europe or California, you most likely know about carbon markets. For everyone else, it goes a little like this. The government puts a cap on the amount of greenhouse gases that can be emitted by a specific industry or sector of the economy. Businesses are then given an allowance as to how many metric tons they can emit in a specified amount of time, say, for example, a year. Those that emit less than their specified amounts can sell the extra to other businesses, pushing everyone to cut down emissions faster. The caps are also reduced every year to avoid saturation and provide motivation for further reductions. That's how they are supposed to work, on paper, that is. The problem with carbon markets is that they simply boost corruption and allow polluters to keep polluting. 
carbon markets were part of the Kyoto Protocol, and instead of reducing emissions, they actually led to an increase in emissions by about 600 million metric tons. Don't get me wrong, under ideal conditions, carbon markets would be critical in helping countries invest in green economies and thus reduce their emissions even further. But those ideal conditions assume that no one else would try to game the system. Let's be honest, what are the chances of that happening? The third problem is addressing the effects of climate change on marginalized and indigenous people. Did you know that roughly 70 to 80% of the world's biodiversity is protected by indigenous people, yet you don't really see them being protected by the Paris Agreement? I was shocked to learn that while some countries, such as Mexico, strongly supported indigenous people at COP21, there was considerable disagreement about where, in the final text of the Paris Agreement, the phrase indigenous rights should appear. Politicians being what they are, it would seem that they were more concerned about being exposed to legal liabilities than they were about, you know, indigenous rights. Sure, indigenous people fighting against climate change have received greater visibility on the global stage. But will said visibility result in tangible changes? We shall see, but as long as climate agreements don't feature protections for indigenous people, then we, as a planet, aren't really going to see any improvements in terms of the fight against climate change. Canada was one of the countries that championed indigenous people's rights at COP21, but we see Canadian companies and the government repeatedly building pipelines through indigenous lands without any fear of retaliation. There is also the Line 3 pipeline project in Minnesota, US, by Canadian oil giant Enbridge. The project goes through indigenous lands, and again, little is done by either government. I think that indigenous people should receive the respect and protection that they are owed. That last part reminds me of something that I alluded to earlier. As long as you're a Western ally, you can get away with all sorts of things. The Paris Agreement has other flaws, but we shall talk about them when we take a good look at COP26. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.